This is Green and Gold History. 50 plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. This is A's Baseball. This is Green and Gold History. Well, we're back with episode four of Memories with Vuce. Steve Usinich, who's retiring after 54 years here with the Oakland Athletics. He's been here since day one. And the last time we got together, Vuce, the A's finally got to the postseason. Four consecutive winning seasons. And then you play the Orioles in the uh, ALCS and lose in three games to the vaulted Baltimore club. And 72 is around the corner. And boy, what a stretch of games and a stretch of seasons it was. Let's focus today on this episode on 1972. Just first, the overview, ending 71, getting ready for 72, and some moves that the A's made, which as we look back on it, were very important to their success. Well, Charlie's key move that winter was trading away Rick Monday, center fielder who had been a favorite of Charlie's forever, number one draft choice ever, uh, to Chicago for veteran left-handed starter Ken Holtzman. Uh, the emergence of Angel Manguel as a center fielder in 71 afforded us to be able to trade Rick and bring Holtzman on. And Kenny, uh, the story about Kenny getting to know about the trade is he's sitting home and he gets a call, doesn't know who it is, and the guy says, I bet you're glad to be away from that, DeRocher. And Kenny said, who is this? It was Charlie Finley announcing the trade to Kenny. So it was pretty funny. So Kenny comes on board, stabilizes that pitching staff. We have a small strike at the beginning of 72, delayed the start of the season by, I don't know, four to six days or so, and we got on a roll. Um, we were playing well. Charlie made a couple midseason trades to strengthen our bench, brought back Ted Kubiak, Don Mincher, and uh, we had a bad time. The White Sox were chasing us, and maybe in, even in first place by a game or so. We had a big weekend series with them. And the Friday night game went some 17, 18, 19 innings and was stopped because the curfew resumed on Saturday morning. And the A's won that game. Then we lost the regularly scheduled game that day. And there were all kind of rumors flying. With Charlie, the way he went through managers after year after year, the rumors were Dick was going to be hired. In a stroke of genius by Charlie Finley, he worked out a extension with Dick Williams, rehired him, going forward and it was announced that night and everybody woke up in the papers and the TV and saw that and breathed a sigh of relief. And so there was no more controversy anymore about Dick Williams getting fired. We won on Sunday and we ran the rest of the way. I mean, we we're getting chased by the White Sox, but I think we were in first place the rest of the way. It was a key move by Charlie, one of the two that counted the most. Vuce, it's ironic that you're talking about a short strike at the beginning of the 72 campaign. We're talking in 2021 and the collective bargaining agreement between the players and ownership ends at the end of this season. And there's a lot of conversation about what might lie ahead. And we don't know. And that's certainly down the road. But back then, that was something new. Marvin Miller took over the Players Association, uh, ran their union starting in the 70s. And this was getting set up for them to, to prove they felt like they deserved more value than what was being provided to them by ownership. What were those days like around the strike? Did it, did it seem like it was something that was really unique, dramatic? What, what was it like? Well, Kenny Holtzman, who had a master's degree and a very intelligent person, seemed like any time there was a controversy, he'd just yell, call Marvin, call Marvin. But uh, the association, the player association was finally recognized for what they are, and they were a bargaining unit. They worked together. There were other years where players vowed to strike on games of the week, and they couldn't get everybody together. Well, they finally did in the early 70s, and uh, 
it was a coup to them and see what they're getting paid these days. Uh, the Finleys, the Griffins, the Bushes, they're all out of baseball now. It's not family anymore. It's all corporations are pretty much that way. And the Players Association, uh, we had other strikes. Uh, some deserved, some not. Some lockouts by the owners. Uh, it, it was a contentious time at that time uh, between the players and the owners. And, and then we finally had peace for so many years, and now you wonder what's going to happen this fall. As you get ready for the 72 campaign, 1971, as we talked about on, on episode three, Vita Blue, 24 wins, Cy Young Award winner, uh, wins the MVP, and suddenly there's an issue between him and Charlie over a contract. You touched on that a little bit last time when uh, there was a reporter that went up to Vita about Mickey Lolich late in that summer with the Detroit Tigers, certainly a blossom into something more. What was that dynamic like? You know, that grabbed the headlines every day in a newspaper, on radio and TV in the Bay Area was a Vita holdout. Back in those days, they uh, you didn't come to camp unless you had a contract, so you had to sign. I mean, some of the biggest contract holdouts before that was the Drysdale-Kofax pairing in the mid-60s. But uh, Vita didn't sign. He didn't like what was being offered. And at a press conference at the Oakland Hilton here in late February or something, he announced he was going to become a plumbing executive, and that made the cover of Sports Illustrated. He was going to work for some company called, I don't know if it was Porta John or something like that, that made bathroom fixtures to go above the toilets. And I'll never forget, I went to that press conference because I wasn't in spring training yet, and uh, because there's no internet, there was no satellite TV, Dick Williams and uh, Frank the the equipment manager time said, go to that press conference and call us right after. So I came out, hit the payphone at the Hilton right outside the Grand Ballroom there and told him what had happened. And a couple of reporters said, he's calling Charlie, he's calling Charlie. And it was just, uh, it became a joke then, but uh, it was a holdout and, and it dominated spring training. Everybody, when is that going to happen? At one time, Charlie Finley sent up Gene Tennis, who Gene and, and Vida had played together through the minor leagues to try to talk him into signing. And uh, then he sent up Kurt Bleffrey, and Kurt Bleffrey's way of negotiating, let's put a bottle of scotch on the table, let's talk until it's gone. Uh, different and old school way. But he didn't sign, and he, he finally agreed, and he had a chip on his shoulder, and I think he only won six games that year, lost 10. Uh, didn't have a very good season. The late spring training, I think, bothered him the most. He was, because I think we touched on the last show about how many more people he drew to both Oakland and road games, that he thought he should be paid the average of of uh, the major league starters at that time. And Charlie didn't see it that way. There was no arbitration process at the time. So it's either a holdout, sign this, or go home. And he finally signed late, but he had a he kind of had an attitude that year. And, and uh, we still won the World Series. You, you look at uh, just the roster of that club, and one thing that, that struck me, because when you think about Reggie Jackson, you think about Reggie in right field all those years with the A's and certainly with uh, the Yankees and others. But that year was a year that Reggie Jackson was the center fielder. I mean, that, that kind of caught me by surprise. What was that like? Well, as I mentioned, Manguel had emerged as a good center fielder, but he got hurt. So they moved Reggie over, and I've, a couple guys played right field. I think we reacquired Brad Allier. We had Bill Voss over there, a couple other guys. So Reggie, Reggie was always a better-than-average outfielder, believe it or not. He got the bad label when the DH became uh, popular, just as Jose at one time was a better-than-average outfielder. But, but uh, him playing center field, he would do anything to help us win, and he was 100% for the team. Uh, he uh, had a decent year, 
uh, following the 71 season where I think he led the American League in home runs. So uh, the thing was about him, he and Mike Epstein were in competition with each other for the team lead in home runs. And Mike Epstein was ecstatic that he ended up hitting more home runs than Reggie because they really didn't like each other. What was it like as you go through the season and the A's win the West? What was that moment like when the A's uh, return to the postseason and they're getting ready to face the Detroit Tigers? Well, uh, I think we clinched with about uh, five, six, maybe even seven days ago. So we, we didn't know who we were going to play because Baltimore, I'm sorry, Boston and Detroit were playing each other the last week, the last three games. And it was a season where we picked it up at the beginning. So everybody was not playing the same amount of games. And so uh, Boston went into Detroit, and I think they were a half game behind. Detroit won the first two to put them ahead and clinched the division. So now we knew we were going to play Detroit. Fortunately, it was at home, so they're going to have to come to us. So the Tigers come out here. They score a run in the top of the 10th of game one, and we score two in the bottom of the 10th to win the game. Uh, the next game, Campaneros is running wild, and that's when Billy ordered Laren Legro, the Detroit pitcher, to hit him. So he threw at his legs, his feet, and that's where Campy makes his money. So Campy turned around and heaved the bat towards Legro, and it started a big controversy. Billy wanted to get at Campy. A couple other players did too. So we leave. So we end up winning that game easily, and we're going to Detroit to win with the two nothing lead. We just got to win one out of the next three. So we go to the airport. We've got a charter flight, and I think because we became the most hated team in Detroit and then Campanera's most hated player in Detroit. Somebody called in a bomb scare. So we were on a plane and everybody had to get off. They took all the luggage off and had to have everybody identify their luggage. One of our coaches was in the bathroom and came out and the plane is being pushed backwards. He's the only one on board. And he had no idea what was going on because there was nobody else there actually or somebody in a pilot seat that has to be there when they tow things. But anyway, it made uh, all the luggage was okay. We got on a plane, went to Detroit, got in late in the morning, had a day off, and uh, we were advised to be careful going out to Detroit because uh, the Tigers fans hated the A's. And so we were careful, and the first game, which was on a Tuesday, game three, Joe Coleman shut us out. Game four was epic. We lost that one. I don't think we still got anybody out in the 10th inning. And game five, we win. That's the game where Reggie breaks his leg. And from there, we go on to, the, to Cincinnati. A couple of things about that series and two moments you just touched on, I want to get a little more information about. First, with Campy throwing the bat. Yes, a guy that was excellent as a base stealer and certainly a very good shortstop. He made himself a good shortstop coming from Kansas City with the ball club. And just to see that moment occur in that manner, had to catch everybody by surprise and suddenly the league's involved and talking about long suspensions and you know what were they going to do. In that moment, what was happening? Well, Campy got suspended for the remainder of that series. And uh, he wouldn't be able to play anyway. He was still limping, still hurt. Uh, he stayed behind in Oakland. And uh, so uh, there was a big controversy between uh, the president of the American League, Joe Cronin, and, and Charlie. Are they going to suspend him? What are they going to do? Charlie supposedly went up to Joe Cronin's suite at uh, the same hotel we were staying in Detroit. And Charlie made a big deal that Joe Cronin was wearing this fuzzy nightcap, you know, and he dressed in a nightgown. And, and, the things that were bannered back and forth were, were classic. But uh, Campy was suspended, so he stayed back here. So they decided to bring him in after we lost game four. These were all day games. Game four, decided to bring him in, and they hired an off-duty Detroit policeman to go with me to the airport to pick up Campy. And he comes in on a flight like 10 o'clock at night or so, and I'm out there with the off-duty cop. 
And Campy's kind of, like I said, stand over there in the corner so nobody recognizes you. Well, here comes this bright green and yellow suitcase. and It's got Campanaris's name on it. All these people are looking. I said, let's get the heck out of here. So the, the cop grabbed the bag and gave us a little extra security. Not that anything was said, but people were looking. So it's like, Campy, couldn't you use the different color suitcase? But um, so he was suspended. He stayed in the clubhouse for that up in game five. Um, we ended up uh, winning, and that's where right after the game was over, you know, uh, Blue Moon threw five innings, Vida threw four in relief. And we've got the small, small, tiny Detroit clubhouse. And there's two stages in there, one for the camera and one for the presentations. And on one side is Vida doing the choke sign to Blue Moon. And Blue Moon's so pumped up, he tries to get it. Vida. So we got national TV going on, a trophy presentation, and we got two players trying to start fight each other. <laughs> so it, it made for a great story. <laughs> You go into the World Series with Reggie Jackson on on crutches, though, because of trying to steal home, and as you mentioned, you know, tearing his hamstring, breaking his leg, whatever the case might be. That has to be, you know, a, a significant blow at the absolute worst time for the club. How did they react around it? You know, we just have to pick it up. You have to go forward. Um, we had, you know, a couple of good replacements in George Hendrick and Angel Man, Panamanian Express, Alan Lewis, a base dealer, and have him eligible for the series in case we needed a pinch runner. You had plenty of pinch hitters back then because you didn't have 13 pitchers on a team. We maybe had 10 at the time, so you had 15 position players, and that's why we had all the extra guys that, that contributed in that series. Mike Egan making a great play in game two at first base. Uh, Don Minchin, all those guys that pinch hit so well in game four in Oakland. So, uh, but it was great because it was the hairs versus the squares. We had the long hair, we had the mustaches, we had the beards, and Cincinnati had the tight rules about hair, and they couldn't even put Adidas-type stripes on their shoes. They had to wear all black, and we were we were flashing. And it was great because here I was, a 20-year-old kid. I won't call myself a hippie or a radical, but a little more leaning to the left, and uh, we got to beat those guys. What was Cincinnati like looking at the A's you mentioned the Harris versus squares corporate versus crazy almost if you will and obviously a team full of future hall of famers with the Reds a very confident and very good ball club looking at this collection of guys that are getting bonuses for wearing mustaches and wearing white shoes and wearing these crazy colors did they look down on the A's at that time well maybe the fans didn't the players didn't they were all jealous because they couldn't get the the, the uh, shoe contracts uh, they couldn't express themselves with longer hair mustaches or beards so I think the Reds, uh, they uh, respected us as players. I mean, they are in the major, in the major leagues. Um, the, uh, the series didn't go the Reds' way. The big red machine was derailed, and uh, I think they got to really respect us. And the city and the fans can't really answer that, but, but uh, everybody in baseball loved us because we had long hair. Last year when the A's were playing the White Sox in the division series or the uh, wild card series here, and there's a ball hit to Mark Cannon in left field, and he jumps on the wall and he makes the catch. And it was very, as we said at the time, Joe Rudy-esque. Game two against Dennis Menke in that World Series uh, against Cincinnati, and he makes one of the most iconic catches in the history of the Fall Classic. This is a guy that started as a shortstop. You mentioned earlier, Joe DiMaggio is the one to help this guy become an outfielder when he first uh, came to, uh, to Oakland when Joe was coaching for those first couple of years. Watching that moment occur and, and, and seeing that happen to one of the most gracious people that's ever worn the A's uniform, that had to be a dramatic moment. Absolutely. I mean, that follows game one, and Gene Tennis hit the two home runs. Right. And he's got, uh, and Gene was a local guy from Ohio there. Uh, but Joe making that catch, and, and what a, a, a game changing moment. 
And that's not an easy play going against a fence like that. It's not like you're reaching over a fence and you catch it or you don't. You're going up against a fence. You miss it by a couple inches. It can roll back and make it could add a triple. So it was game changing. It was awesome to watch that in replay. And all the players respected Joe and were so happy for him. And it's not just an individual moment that helped the team. Yeah, I was wrong. I should have gone back to game one with Gene Tennis. He had five home runs during the regular season, and suddenly he's facing Gary Nolan in game one, and you guys are jumping on him. And it's Gene Tennis leading the way. Talk about a, a shock and a lightning bolt against the Reds at Riverfront. When that occurred, what was the reaction like on the bench? Well, Gary Nolan's from Northern California, so he was well-known to us just for the local part of it but uh, Gino hits the first home run and I'll never forget he hits the second one and I'll never forget Sal yelled out Gino real loud it's like what are you doing but you know what's funny is is the next year you're looking at his stats and all his stats Gene Tennis is from the years that he had in the big leagues added up to about a full season and he had 20 home runs so we knew the power was there it's just is he going to connect and is he going to play every day and he did he had the two home runs and that made it so much fun that he was from Ohio. All his family and friends were there, and, and uh, it was a special time for him. It, it was a game that the A's lost, but it featured a very interesting scenario with Raleigh Fingers on the mound, and Dick Williams jogs out with Johnny Bench at the plate. Three balls and two strikes, and they think that you're going to intentionally walk him, and he comes up with, as Johnny Bench has said time and time again, the greatest slider I've ever seen from Raleigh Fingers. Uh, Dick Williams was, was a pretty sharp guy and, and trying to put all that together. Uh, Take me through the, that moment and what that was like seeing that happen. Well, when it happened, I was inside the clubhouse and I said, oh my God, did you see that? He just struck him out and he, when, when everybody thought he was going to be intentionally walking. You know, to relive that moment and, and all the great moments in that 72 series where every game except game six was decided by one run. It was such a close series, a well-played series on both sides. Uh, and that's just a little part of it. What was game seven like? Well, uh, in, in that game... We felt confident. The funny thing is we were taking bat, just started to take batting practice and it started to rain. And it didn't rain. It was like very Dutch sprinkling. But the Reds said, hey, they got to get the tarp on the field. What, you're covering home plate, the pitcher's mound, and three base because they had all AstroTurf. And so they, we didn't get to take batting practice. So those days you didn't have batting cages, so you couldn't do anything except just swing swing uh, in a dugout or, or around without hitting any balls. So... That kind of gives us a little chip on our shoulder. We're a little upset about that. And Dick said, hey, this is a time to make up for it. And he got up there and gave a speech. Hey, whatever happens today, I'm proud of you guys. And, and we kind of win the game not even thinking about losing. Understanding this is an HBO, but what was it like at 30,000 feet flying back home after the celebration of winning the first ever World Series for, for the city of Oakland and for the East Bay? Well, before we took off, we were told that people were flooding. That was a big thing back then. I'm sure it was everywhere, but especially in Oakland, to go to the airport, welcome your teams in. And so we were told before we left that traffic was already blocked from Doolittle on down to the airport. and People couldn't get in. And so we land. They took all the other flights and diverted them to San Francisco and San Jose. So we land and we're kept out on a runway and then moved over to the tarmac, but not next to the terminal. We piled the players into the buses and the families were taken to the Coliseum on buses. They couldn't go up Hagenberger Road. They had to go through Alameda, take Doolittle around Alameda because there was so much traffic. It was estimated there were a couple hundred thousand people heading to the airport. And I remember going in the airport and, and I think it was uh, Sal and Catfish carrying a trophy and people were passing out because it was so hot in there and, and so miserable. And, 
it, it was just a great thing to come back. And, and I used to go to the airport when the Raiders had a good game long before the A's came to Oakland. And, but it was nothing like that. But it was a thing we all did and we enjoyed. But I'd never see anything like that at the airport. So we could get back out on our buses, go to the Coliseum. Next day, have a great parade. Moose, I know you got a chance to experience this on, on more than one occasion. And with 54 <laughs> years, there are so many great memories. But when it's the first time and it's the ultimate prize and seeing what this club has always gone through, it seemed like on a daily basis where you would turn the page of, of some kind of chaos or some kind of fire that somebody had to put out. Tell me what this, how special 72 means to Steve Vucinich. Well, everybody says, who's your favorite player? And it's well known as Catfish Hunter. And everybody says, what was your favorite time with the A's? And I said, winning the World Series in 1972, being beaten the uh, squares by the hairs, uh, never, never even thinking the World Championship could ever come to Oakland, let alone being with the team, working for them for those years. And it's my favorite moment of all time. Episode five will take us through 1970. Uh, 73, and I'm sure there'll be a few bumps along the way for that season, but ultimately they get back to where they want to be. Memories with Voose, episode four, as we focused on the 1972 season. What a great time to enjoy these 54 memories of great uh, opportunities to hear the stories from Steve Usich. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.